Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting right across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. This is the entertainment capital of the world. We have the Oscars on next week, so Hollywood Boulevard is closed for about five blocks or something while they build all the grandstands and whatever for the public. So it's an exciting week here. Now, last week, one of my uh, daily newsletters that I send out, the emails, addressed the disciplines of marketing that have been forgotten, or in many cases in the digital companies, never learned. Um, And we got a fantastic response to that email because a lot of people didn't realize that there's a structure that you need to go through in order to sell people stuff. And uh, it's not about additional product advertising or more digital media or more tweets or more anything. You can put as much of that stuff up as you like. It's not going to sell any more product or build a relationship with a customer. There's certain things you need to do, and today I'm just going to address what works. So I can hear you know, a whole bunch of you go, yeah, we all know that. We don't have to be told again. Well, Pick up any brochure, look at any online banners, look at almost all newspaper ads or pick up practically any email or direct mail piece. Guess what? They're full of features about the product. And features don't sell. Only, you know, features are useless, absolutely useless and it takes only one glance at all these advertising pieces to determine why they don't work and on average less than 20% of all messages provide a benefit to the consumer so features don't work benefits are the only things that do so it's absolutely vital to differentiate yourself from your competition You know, it's getting more and more and more global and more and more and more competitive so that when anybody thinks of your product or your service, they've got to think of you first. So I'm hoping that with all the radio show and sending out one and a half million um, newsletters a day that when people think marketing, they're going to go, aha, Pritchard, that's who I need to hire. And if they don't, then the likelihood of me attracting their business is significantly diminished. If they do, then at least they're going to inquire. Now, whether I then convert the sale, it's up to me, but at least I'm in the game. You must get into the potential customer's pre-conscious mind because this is a totally emotional region of the brain. Only an emotional trigger will give your product or service recall over that of your competitors. Now, science has proven that every reaction you ever have in your life is emotionally triggered. Every decision you've ever made in your life was made because it made you feel emotionally better in some way. You know, motivating people to buy a product or a service is absolutely no different. The most effective way to impact the consumer to obtain that pre-conscious mind recall and to motivate them to purchase your product without a pragmatic evaluation of your product because you don't want them to think straight off, aha, this one does three things and this one does two. You know what? You want to stay right out of that stuff. You want to sell the emotional benefits so they are already got an attraction to you without going through the pragmatic stuff because you've got to look behind the pragmatism and you've got to identify the emotional benefit that the consumer obtains from the product or service. I need to know whether is this product going to be better or quicker in some way? Will it change the cost? You've got to realise that unless you've built heart share with your customer, the consumer doesn't care about you. They care about them. So 
you've got to build an emotional connection. A simple traditional product example, Johnson's Baby Powder. It's a huge worldwide seller that constantly blitzes its competition. The competition features focuses on the product and its features, such as absorbency tests. You know, they hold up a nappy or a, a diaper and pour a gallon of water in it and say, our product absorbs an extra volume of liquid. Well, Johnson's advertising just keeps emphasising a highly emotional, loving mother-child relationship. And mothers are much more attracted to a great relationship with their child than an extra litre of water poured out of a jug. So to distinguish between a feature and a benefit, remember, the only thing that works is benefits. So how do you tell between a feature and a benefit? You simply apply the so what test. If I can say so what after the statement, it's a feature. If I can't, then it's a benefit. So you just say, make the statement, so what? If you can't say so what, then it's a benefit. Any form of communication you design must always be consumer-friendly. Don't use industry terms that people don't know and do not include loads of information about how wonderful you are or how the product actually works. Nobody gives a rat's ass. They just want to know that it's quicker, it's better, it's whatever it is. They don't care how it achieves those results. So focus on addressing what it is that will make the customer's life easier. Simply doing so makes it easier to convey your product or service benefits. For example, after the initial warm and fuzzies in the first sentence of an email, letter, SMS, etc., to a client, take out every sentence that does not provide the client with the pragmatic and a resultant emotional benefit. You know, you don't have time in today's fast-paced world to write meaningless sentences and the recipient does not have time to read them. I did a, a, a communications course in New York many years ago and you'd, we used to take business letters, you know, dear sir, yada, 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 two pages of stuff and you take out every line that isn't a benefit to the person reading it. And 99 times out of 100, you know, your letter finishes up, dear sir, yours faithfully. Everything in the middle is gone but because it was no meaningful benefit to the reader. And that's just a waste of words. Remember, people are all driven by emotion. And to achieve success, focus on emotional benefits, not on a meaningless feature. Now, this is it. This is interesting because most people, when you trip around the world, most people think the US is the world leader in technology and vision and, you know, this is where it's all at. <clears throat> well, here are three stories to change your mind. Firstly, the flying car has arrived. The, fin- the flying cars finally arrived and it'll be commercially available com- for commuters in early 2017. That's this year, flying cars. Pre-orders are being taken by Liberty. The, three, the vehicle's three wheels and retractable top-mounted rotor makes the vehicle look more like a gyrocopter than a traditional sedan. <coughs> but it can drive and fly. Liberty was not only designed to overcome technical and qualification challenges, it also complies with existing safety standards as well as car and aviation regulations. Liberty's got a pair of engines, one for the ground and one for air travel. Both engines are supplied by the Austrian aircraft engine manufacturer Rotax and they produce 100 horsepower, achieve fuel economy of 31 miles per gallon and accelerate to 62 miles an hour in less than nine seconds on its way to 100 mile an hour top speed. So that's pretty good performance for something that's flying. Now, when you enter the flying mode, the Liberty 
changes from a 13-foot-long and 5-foot-tall car into a 20-foot-long and 10-foot-tall flying machine. Once in the sky, the Liberty makes 200 horsepower and can reach speeds as high as 112 miles per hour while reaching a maximum operating altitude of 12,000 feet. Add a passenger in the second seat, and that range drops to 248 miles. But Liberty's operator must have both a driver's license and a pilot's license to use the vehicle in both of its forms. Now, so if you're interested in purchasing a Liberty flying car in the next couple of months, you'll need to write a non-refundable deposit check for 25000 for the Pioneer Edition or just $10,000 for the Sport. That's a deposit. Alternatively, you can put down $2,500 to lock in a spot on the Liberty's waiting list. So that's flying cars from later this year. Flying taxis will be happening from July this year in Dubai. The United Arab Emirates city of Dubai is the world's first to allow passenger carrying drone taxis. Dubai will have people carrying drones in this US summer. So by the time we get around to summer here, there will be people carrying drones in the air in Dubai. Um, the, um, the flying taxis can carry one person in a suitcase with a combined weight of 117 kilos, which is about 260 pounds, and test flights are currently ongoing across Dubai's skies. So you get in the flying taxi, you select your destination, at which point a command centre on the ground takes over and pilots the vehicle. You don't have a pilot. There's only you and your luggage, and uh, it has a peak altitude of 3.5 kilometres, a top speed of 160 kilometres an hour, and can travel for half an hour on a single charge. So as long as you don't have to go that far, as long as your distance is less than 50 kilometres, catch a flying taxi. And the uh, grand strategy that Dubai has is to increase traffic efficiency, productivity, reduce traffic, traffic congestion and pollution, although there's not a lot of traffic congestion unless you're going from Dubai to Abu Dhabi, there's a bit there, and save millions of driving hours. In the case of malfunction or connection problems, the drones immediately land in the closest possible safe area. So they're two really cool things, flying cars and drone taxis, both of which will be operating by the middle of the year. Add to that, Hyperloop One, which is based here in Southern California, has signed an agreement with Dubai Roads and Transport Authority, again in Dubai, for a hyperloop between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. It's a couple of hours drive. For those of you who have done it, it can get pretty crowded on that road and um, you can't speed because there's speed cameras. It seems like every 100 feet there's a bloody speed camera on that road. And uh, Hyperloop 1 unveiled its concept for the uh, transport system. It'll travel at 700 miles an hour and take passengers from Dubai to Abu Dhabi in 12 minutes and it's normally a two-hour drive. So this is how the Hyperloop operates, and I think this is so cool. Firstly, passengers check your app. So you pick up your phone, you check your app to see where, what your transportation options are. And if a Hyperloop's available, the app will list the gate where the Hyperloop's available with details on how long it'll take to arrive, detailing every step of your journey. Part of that journey involves taking a pod from the designated gate listed on the app. So you go to the designated gate, you get in the pod, and just like an airplane, there's different classes of pod. One designed for multiple people, like cattle class, I suppose, to a lounge pod, which has fewer people where they can kick back and relax and do whatever for the 20 minutes that you travel 700 miles or whatever it is. The pod will then travel to the entrance of the Hyperloop. 
At the Hyperloop, there'll be 120 pod gates, which will accommodate over 8,500 people an hour. So four pods are assigned to each Hyperloop tube. Three of those pods are for passengers and a separate one for cargo. You will then have officially embarked on your Hyperloop journey. So imagine being in New York. I know for those of you who have been in New York and you say, drive down to Washington, D.C. Well, you'll be able to get on your Hyperloop. 20 minutes later, you're in Washington, D.C. No more Jersey Turnpike, no more pain in the ass. drive down the freeway. So these cities like Washington, New York and whatever, they become like metro stops. So it's amazing. You'll be able to live any place in the world. So once the Hyperloop tube arrives at the destination, the four pods leave the tube exit the station and travel on the street to your final destination. So it's <laughs> way to go. I mean, it is just phenomenal. Hyperloop's also going to transport cargo. They secured $50 million in funding from DP World, the third largest port and terminal operator in the world. And the port system means unloading can happen way offshore. The Hyperloop then travels underwater and the tube can unload the cargo in the middle of the desert. It gets trucks off the road and unlocks billions of dollars of waterfront property for redevelopment. So, folks, futuristic transports here and three of the most exciting, phenomenal examples don't happen in the US. Well, not at this time anyway. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? Well, as from next Monday, we have about 1.5 million daily subscribers. 1.5 million daily subscribers. That's a phenomenal number. So I invite you, if you don't get it, you are missing out on something really cool. So I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll. There's a pop-up, and you just... um, Put in your details and you will get the newsletter the very next day. It take, the newsletter is great because it takes just 30 seconds to read it and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. I have people saying to me, you know, I used to get 50 daily newsletters. Every bastard and their dog sent me a daily newsletter and now I only read one, mine. So make sure that you're getting it. My guest today... Paul O'Byrne is a great guy, super guy, doesn't live very far from, from us, and he's an impact specialist in the cultural creative industries area. Most recently, spent five years with Kate Blanchett and Andrew Upton, leading their social impact community and environmental sustainability initiatives. Paul's got broad experience in building strategic cross-sector partnerships with the creation of programs for strategic, financial, and social impact in the cultural sector and creative businesses. So if you're sitting out there and you've got a business and you think, I'd really like to be known for being, you know, a better community citizen, a special, you know, doing more good for the community, Paul O'Byrne is your guy. And I'll be back with Paul immediately after this short break on the Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com.
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Over the last five and a half years or so, and I'm not sure whether I mentioned that um, I've just signed for another year a couple of weeks ago. So we've got six years, not bad, considering we started on a 13-week trial. But uh, over those five and a half years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 300 of the world's most interesting people. We talk about what they do, the challenges they've faced and what makes them tick. It's um, extremely difficult to make your mark in the world and achieve success. Most businesses fail. Most people fail. Um, in fact, the latest figures I saw with startups, it's over 98% of startups fail. So the aim of this segment is to introduce you to people that are involved in interesting and possibly different roles. And um, we try to learn their keys to success. The other aim of this segment is to assist you to overcome challenges, seize initiatives, and become highly successful. My guest today, Paul O'Byrne, is a really interesting character. He's an impact specialist in the cultural creative area. And what the hell does that mean? Well, we'll find out in a minute. But Paul most recently worked with Kate Blanchett, Academy Award-winning actress, and Andrew Upton, and uh, with Theatre in Australia leading their social impact community and environmental sustainability initiatives. He did that for five years. He's got broad experience in building strategic cross-sector partnerships and the creation of programs for strategic financial and social impact in the cultural sector and creative businesses. He's an expert creative entrepreneur, helping companies conceive, lead, deliver and evaluate major change programs turning their business problems into long-term assets. Paul's got broad experience across a wide range of leading creative arts and cultural businesses, and he works with executive teams to assess the real strategic need, identify the best path, identify new funding and revenue opportunities, and solve complex problems and drive the project with cross-sector stakeholders to deliver lasting value, and that's what we all need. Paul's been a successful startup founder, not many of them around, major event manager, social entrepreneur, environmental and corporate change maker. Phew, I'm glad I got through that. Paul, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard right around the world. Hey, Bob, how are you? I am really good. I'm really good. Good. It's, um, the weather looks like it's getting better. It's nowhere near as cold. For those of you outside Southern California, which is most of you, um, we're used to weather that's sort of 80 degrees every day, never any rain. And uh, for the last two or three weeks, we've had nothing but rain and cold, which is very unusual for us. And uh, we don't like it. And the freeways don't like it. But uh, it looks like it's picking up. Now, Paul... Social consciousness and sustainability, they're becoming increasingly important to corporations today, and there's been loads of studies that shown just how important they are to the bottom line, to share prices, to employee morale, um, and a whole range of other things, and not to mention, it's great for the planet. So, how would you describe social consciousness consciousness and sustainability for those who are listening and are not quite sure what we mean? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think just to start with, it's, it's, it's coming back to the fundamentals of, of businesses being able to operate or having a license to operate. And, and when sometimes the, the pendulum sort of swings a little far um, in business and corporate favour, um, you know, I think sometimes the broader population goes, hang on, this isn't quite fair. The planet's kind of getting uh, 
shafted along the way or or the communities that these companies are working with um, are not necessarily getting looked after. And I think that so social impact and social sustainability in a, and an environmental sustainability in a corporate setting is really about um, just bringing that back into balance and, and recognising that companies, be they small micro-businesses or large multinational corporations, are actually operating in an ecosystem and that ecosystem needs to get looked after. So if that's about looking after your supply chain and the workers that work within that or um, or your fleet of trucks that are driving around the country um, and ensuring that maybe they're not polluting the communities you're trying to sell to, um, that's uh, that all helps ultimately your brand and your place and your uh, and your ability to, to actually operate in that market. Companies that have, have become socially responsible, um, there's a lot of companies, but the ones that are obvious, you know, the, the Patagonias, the Starbucks, those sorts of people that um, are socially responsible, is that being driven mainly by millennials and, and the younger generation or is it across the board? It seems to me just with my son who's now 25 or 26 um, and his friends, they really do care whether a company is being socially responsible. It really matters to them. Do you think they're older folks like us? Do you think it, um, you think we're as concerned? I think so. I think um, certainly inside business, um, you know, p- companies are always looking at their um, ability to operate. And so I think they're concerned. And on the consumer side, certainly there is a percentage of the population um, that's concerned about, you know, the impact on the planet or on, on communities. But And I think that that obviously grows um, the, the kind of younger uh, demographic you get, but these this kind of concept isn't new. Um, you know, Cadbury's, the you know the global chocolate brand, um, back in the mid nineteenth century, they were operating in Birmingham, and um, and they were they realised that actually a third of the population of Birmingham were living in you know disgusting streets and everything else, and so they established this. Uh, factory in Bourneville um, in 1879 and and it was state of the art they had um, exercise facilities and bathing units and gardens and sports fields and hygiene facilities and actually by looking after their employees they were actually looking after their business they were making sure that they had long uh, established um, relationships with their employees and 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 obviously that would trickle out through their, um, you know, not only their quality, but but in terms of their brand and their reputation within the local community. Yeah, that's interesting because I've been to, I wonder if they're two different things. I wonder if, um, you know, people like, for example, um, the Googles and, and people or that have fantastic facilities that have got exercise rooms and they've got, um, you know, they serve meals to the employees, they've got massage rooms, they've got all of these things. Is that real? Is that because they want to or because there's such a competition for staff today that they think, geez, if we don't, we're not going to hang on to people? Well, I think it's probably <laughs> I think it's probably the latter, but at the same time, it's you know there's a there's a business imperative and to minimise churn and uh, and and also attract attract and retain those the right talent. And you know, as you as you will know, and your listeners would know, it costs a lot to uh, to replace someone, and uh, and so it's much it's often much cheaper to give them food or, or give them a gym um, membership or what have you. So I think that, that like looking holistically at, um, at employees and employee well-being is just one part of being a good corporate citizen, but also looking at your, um, you know, looking at the environment in which you work or the factories in which you operate, that's, that's another factor of being a good corporate citizen. 
Yeah. I often wonder what percentage of companies um, are good corporate citizens because it does boost share price. It does boost your market cap. It does all those things. But I wonder how many of them would do it if it didn't. You know, yeah, look, I, I think there are there are a few uh, brave ones, you know, as you mentioned, like the Patagonias who who kind of just have a bit of a north star and they and they just go for that and that's very much core to who they are as a brand. Um, but you know, the there is you know also a long history of 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 companies that have a strong social conscience being taken up and purchased by large multinationals. Yeah. So, you know, the likes of Ben and & Jerry's and, um, uh, um, you know, many others, um, I think Tom's, yeah, Bird's Bees, um, you know, all of those companies have been taken on by larger corporations. And, and recently, um, Campbell Soups bought uh, a, a health and well-being brand for babies and they were established as a, a B Corp or a benefit corporation mm. and... Uh, and they, they Campbell Soup decided that no, they were going to keep that. That was an integral part of the brand, mm. and they were going to keep that as um, and unchanged as they uh, folded it into their portfolio. So, it, I think companies and corporations are increasingly realize, realizing that not only this is the right thing to do, but it makes good business sense, and also they're going to attract and retain the right people. So, look, no one, I don't think. People are altruistic and and they have this kind of halo over their head and they want to they want to do stuff for the sake of it. It actually it makes good business sense and yeah. you know um, GE have you know, more than ten years ago they identified that actually being a good corporate citizen and focusing in on the opportunities that presented themselves around environmental sustainability uh, and health and well being have created enormous new markets for them um, and the same with Vodafone in uh, in Africa they you know 10 12 years ago they were using mobile technology to help people uh, actually transact money without the need need for banks and currency and that was happening years and years ahead of ahead of their time but what they were doing was actually opening up brand new markets for themselves yeah well yeah, just going back to that, the um, nearly all of the transactions in Africa now are all um, um, online transactions. Very few people have money, and the banks don't don't really count. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, Vodafone spear, spearheaded that, and actually, it was one of they had a kind of an entrepreneur um, that was. You know, one of their team in Africa that kind of saw an opportunity saw that Vodafone actually had the tech to deliver on that, and with a few tweaks, was able to make it happen. Yeah. So so far, we've spoken about big companies. Mm. If you're a small company or even a medium-sized company, how can you be socially and environmentally responsible and profitable? Don't doesn't being does being socially and environmentally responsible means you have to spend more money? Uh, yes and no. I think it's about spending money necess- or spending money or diverting resources, be that time or, or staff or whatever it might be, into the right place. And it doesn't mean that you have to replicate the big boys and, uh, and go out and try and be everything to everyone. Um, you can be, you know, for instance, you could be a, a local plumber that that someone, you know, let's imagine a local plumber that says, you know, my mother was a, um, a, a single mom and, and she went through the homeless uh, centre. I want to do something for that for that centre. So then that, that individual says, right, I'm going to actually volunteer my time uh, to that women's shelter downtown but also what I'm going to do is every time I get a client, I'm going to tell them what I'm doing and see if they want to give $10 or $5 or just make a little donation to cover the cost of all my materials. And then they can also engage their supply chain and say uh, when they go to their, their plumbing supply place, look, I'm doing this thing. So it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an enormous undertaking. It can be a very small 
um, thing. But I think more than anything, that those sort of stories and that kind of engaging with your supply chain or with your end customers and giving a kind of a, a story um, is actually what engages people and what connects people to a business. If that's a small micro business like a one one man plumbing operation, or it could be. Um, I recently was working with a, an Australian fashion brand who um, they were saying, look, where do we start? We've got such a complex supply chain in multiple continents. Um, where do we start? We, we're being pressured on social media to do, to do more uh, or to talk about things more. Where do we start? And I think the important thing is just to actually start and to kind of say, you know, well, we're going to do something. And so... One of the things that, you know, when I worked with them and we identified that one of the biggest impacts that they were having was actually their international travel as a company. They travel a lot. Right. And, and, and so even just offsetting all their flights and, uh, and purchasing green power and actually saying that for travel and for, um, and for the company operations at their head office, they were carbon neutral. That's a that's a very simple thing to do. It's not. It's at first very small step, um, but then I think you know it's about bringing in some people that can help navigate that that pathway and find a way that is meaningful, not only to that company but to their employees and their and their various stakeholders. Most most particularly their their customers. And that person that you call in is Paul O'Byrne, right? Not necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of really great people. I mean, certainly I could do it. And uh, you you stop there. You stop there. You don't give anybody else a plug. You stop there. (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, I was reading um, a story about um, Mars, the French Bill Gates, if you like, who has set up a um, sustainability giving uh, organisation where he's asking everybody to give 1% of whatever they've got, whether they're a worker or whether they're a big company. Um, and he, he did emphasise that there's all these benefits, the increased share value, the increased market cap, the retention of staff, all those things. But he said, in order to really get that to pay off, you've got to promote the hell out of the fact that you're being socially and environmentally responsible. Mm. So does that mean that you've really got to yell it out at people rather than just let it happen by osmosis? Well, I think when everyone is is yelling, um, it creates for a very noisy uh, environment. And uh, and I think w- what it comes back to is differentiation, like any kind of marketing message. And I think if if it's it's one thing to kind of give one percent, but if everyone is giving one percent and everyone's talking that they're giving one percent, it, it's kind of meaningless, right? Except it's good so that whoever's getting the one percent. Absolutely. And I think that therefore it's coming back to when when you're actually talking about that, it's actually talking about the impact rather than we gave $220 million last year. Who, you know, who cares? Because the next guy will say, well, we gave $245 million. And yeah. so it actually is, well, what actually happened with that money? What are the communities that have been affected? What are the what are the lives that have been affected? How is the how is the planet or this community or the world in which we operate a better place? That's what people want to hear. That's what they resonate to. And and I think um, that the kind of clarity of that of that message comes from really good measurement and evaluation and having a really clear sense of what it is you're trying to do there. So what. Like rather than focusing in on the solution, actually zeroing in on the problem and going, what what it was what is it we're trying to fix? And then telling people how you're getting closer to fixing that. Right. Um, for a small company, obviously the benefits for a big company are pretty obvious, but for a, a smaller company, mm. um, what's the business case for a smaller company? Apart from well, doing, doing good and feeling good. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know, for a small company, I think engagement, uh, well, actually, I'll take a step back. It's, I think it's the first thing is differentiation. I mean, let's face it, business uh, today is incredibly competitive and uh, in most markets are very cluttered and it's very hard to differentiate yourself in those. Um, so I think actually having a point of difference and having something that you can kind of stake your business on that is not only engaging and meaningful to your customer base, but it's also meaningful and engaging to your staff um, and your stakeholders and the banks that give you money and, and, and. So I think that, you know, more than anything, it's about kind of reputation and, and differentiation. And I think that if you're a, you know, if you're a small business or a, you know, medium-sized business with a couple of hundred employees, that's incredibly important when you're actually competing for your labor or, you know, for your employees against the likes of Google that, uh, you know, that have unlimited resources um, or, or other companies that have incredibly well-developed corporate social responsibility programs. So I think that increasingly, you know, particularly as millennials enter the, the workforce um, more and more, um, that message will need to be um, prevalent pretty much throughout the, the value chain. Who's doing um, sustainability and environmental um, impact well? And who's doing it badly, apart from the Trump <laughs> government? <laughs> Look, I think, um, I mean, I mentioned Vodafone uh, previously, and, and I think what's impressive about them is that they've been, um, they've been very consistent and they've focused in on that intersection of what needs to happen and where they can add the most value and what they're best placed to do. And I think that kind of clarity and impact intersection is super important. So, so I think Vodafone have, they kind of staked their, their um, line in the sand a long time ago and have been true to that. Equally, um, someone like uh, Walmart, who you, would, you wouldn't think of as an environmental leader, have been able to save literally millions and millions and millions of dollars by, by not only saying uh, that this is where we're going as a company, but um, engaging their workforce to say, all right, you're, you're on the ground, you can see stuff happening. And one guy in there, I mean, this is a, an old example, but one guy who was on their um, floor, uh, on their shop floors said, you know, actually, why, why are all the vending machines lit up? Um, they actually, you know, we've already got enormous store lighting. They realized they were just by taking the, the uh, light bulbs out of their vending machines, they, they saved $2 million a year. No one, wow. you, 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 you saw, um, you know, you still saw the products because those stores are so well lit. Sure. Um, but just those simple things. So I think, you know, the people, there are a lot of companies that are doing stuff and not, you know, um, beating their own drum too much about it. They're just getting on with it because they realize also that it's actually, it's great for business. They're making, you know, they're making a lot of savings, uh, particularly in the environmental space. Um, and yeah, and so I think that they're doing, they're doing it particularly well. Um, I mean, there are so many banks, I think, uh, have often been competing in this space, um, phone companies like Vodafone, tech companies, um, and they're all kind of staking, you know, trying to sort of stake their, their place. And I could go on for days with, with examples, but it's, um, and even, you know, you know when there's money to be made in this space when, when the large consulting companies move in. So, you know, the likes of PwC and Bain and all of those, they've all moved into this space as well. So, um, clearly, it's it's moving into um, the mainstream. There's a brilliant ad from Starbucks at the moment on television that says that um, you know they've planted so many trees and they've they're carbon neutral and they've employed you know ten thousand students and they've employed ten thousand veterans and they've it just goes on and on and on about all the good things they've done and it's a really impressive ad you sit there at the end of the ad and go wow i feel like going and 
just supporting them by being uh, buying a coffee. You know, it's yeah. a very powerful ad. Um, where do we go from here? Well, I mean, what's the big trends that's happening now that will continue to grow or what's going to happen next week, next year, year after? Well, I think, you know, certainly the, the um, you know, the bigger guys, are, you know, the, the very big brands, global brands are, are sort of setting the, the course, but at the same time, um, they're not very nimble. So I think some of the, the larger brands are learning from the smaller brands. Um, but, but I think the, you know, the role of the employee uh, in, a, in, an, in an environment where there is going to be um, people transitioning through their, through their careers and changing uh, careers on a number of levels, uh, on, on a number of occasions throughout their career, they need to be engaged not only with what the company is doing every day, but but who they are and what their values are. Because um, so that I think will continue to be a huge um, huge factor. What I think in, the sorry. What influence will the public play? For example, all the with with the Trump presidency, all of the fuel companies have come out saying we want to scrap all the fuel emission laws, we want to scrap the um, mandatory mileage targets, we want to scrap all that, we want to go back to the good old days when we can do what we fucking like. Um, so how does the public play a role in all this? I mean, it's uh, all right. With, it's with all their right. wallets. Yeah, but you've got to buy fuel. Yeah, true. All but the same. Absolutely. <laughs> all I think, well, I think that, you know, a lot of people are moving – you know, particularly well in in the bubble of Southern California, at least sure. it's uh, you know to electric cars, and I think that you know that a lot of the the major kind of car companies realise that that is that's the future. Um, but look, I think the you know the current administration and and where things are going, it's it, it like anything, it's it's a needle that sort of swings back and forth, but but ultimately, I think. In terms of um, the general population and where things are going, uh, and the rise of, of the millennials, as we've talked about, um, it's only it, it's only going to become more and more important for companies, uh, particularly as you know, if the disparity in wealth becomes even more prevalent, or climate change or the effects of so-called climate change uh, become more increasingly apparent. Uh, people will be looking for answers and they will be looking for solutions. And and governments increasingly are stepping away from all of this stuff and I think corporations are recognising and businesses, you know, large and small are recognising that they have a, a powerful role to play in it. Okay. This, this is probably something you don't like talking about, but you were with um, um, Kate Blanchett and Andrew Upton for a quite a long, many years. Mm. What's their commitment to sustainability in the environment? Obviously, they have a strong one. They, you wouldn't have been employed. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I, I think uh, it, it's one of their initial visions for the Sydney Theatre Company that they took on in uh, as the artistic directors in 2008 when they were asked what, what their vision for the, for the company was Initially, like before they'd even started, they said that they wanted to to demonstrate that the arts could be a leader in climate change alongside uh, fuel companies or banks or whatever it might be. And so, the and it's an unusual place for the the arts to kind of say, "All right, well, we're gonna we're gonna have solar panels on the roof or that kind of thing," especially when uh, the art form. Uh, is is the most important thing, which is kind of like the profit centre for uh, sure. for an arts and cultural organisation. So, I think for them to kind of stake their reputations uh, on that on that bold vision back in two thousand and eight was um, was a brave one. And and I think you know working with them closely, I realised that they they do walk the talk. You know, they when they moved back to Sydney, they completely retrofitted. 
their uh, home on Sydney Harbour with one of the best rainwater harvesting systems and solar um, uh, solar arrays on the roof and even timed showers. And so you would, and there, are, there are not many Hollywood stars that, that have timed showers. <laughs> yes. so, so they, you know, they, they walk the talk. Kate, Kate would drive herself around Sydney in a Prius and, uh, and they, they lived it. And, and, you know, that's, that was incredibly encouraging to the staff and the audiences, I think, of, of the Sydney Theatre Company. But, but in, in, interestingly, you know, when, you, when I used to speak to the HR manager there, she would say that nine times out of ten when, ask, when asking new employees why they were coming to work for Sydney Theatre Company, it was the environmental sustainability credentials that attracted them because they could go and work, you know, and be a marketing yeah. manager in so many different places, or they could be a they could be an accountant in so many different places. But there were very few companies that were actually putting themselves on the line. So, with that, STC was able to attract um, uh, really great people like myself, like yourself, which <laughs> is not a bad way to finish the interview. So, if you're sitting out there and you've got a small business or a medium-sized business or indeed a large business, and you believe that you should be doing a lot more about um, uh, sustainability and about environmental impact, then Paul O'Byrne is your guy. I, I know him very, very well. He's very dedicated, as you've just heard. He's very smart. He really knows his stuff, and uh, he would he would love to talk to you. Paul, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thanks, you, Bob. It's been a pleasure. You can learn more about Paul at, I don't know where this comes from, but pollination.com. International, and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week, we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment. Now, after making a fortune in tech startups, French entrepreneur Alexandre Mars is using his wealth to transform philanthropy. (laughs) I had trouble with a couple of those words. Since he started his first company at the age of 17, he says his goal has been to create a movement around charitable giving. Now, Mars wants to encourage businesses to donate 1% of their profits to charity and launch a new platform to encourage non-wealthy donors to give to good causes. Now, more and more businesses and individuals are finding that there are very substantial rewards earned by donating to charities, the arts and other good causes. Of course, the major benefit is feeling great by helping causes who might otherwise not be able to survive. I know as a global ambassador for kidney health, a disease that kills more people, listen to this folks, kidney disease kills more people than breast or prostate cancer, drug overdoses, suicides and motor vehicle accidents combined. And I learned just how difficult it was to raise funds even for a cause as fantastic as that one. As a result, once a month, I'm going to have a Giving Tuesday, both through this newsletter, through the newsletter and also through my radio show. I'll be appealing to everyone who enjoys this, the column and the radio show to give what they can to help various causes. I don't care whether it's a dollar or a million dollars, that'd be nice. Every donation helps and every single penny from Giving Tuesday will go to the cause there will be absolutely no fees or any other deductions. The funds will be audited. And I want to thank Nick Hardcastle 
from Australian Theatre Group in Los Angeles for this wonderful suggestion. Uh, he came around for coffee yesterday and he, he suggested it and I thought, wow, that's something that just might fly. So I hope you support it. And going back to Alexandre Mars, ever since he was a teenager, he wanted to do something for social good. So he's a serial entrepreneur and he turned philanthropist. He always pictured his life as a quest to fulfil that philanthropic goal. He's the founder of Epic Foundation, which is a non-profit aimed at improving charitable giving by ensuring, first of all, that 100% of donation actually reaches the people it's meant to reach, and secondly, that more people give. So up until now, he's targeted only wealthy people and corporations, but in March, the foundation will launch a new platform called Epic Generation to enable anybody to donate even small amounts to charity. With the new platform, Mars wants to reach a younger millennial audience that he believes is one of the most socially engaged generations that's ever existed. I have to agree with that. He wants to democratise giving. And yet, if you don't have 50000 bucks to donate, maybe you have 25 bucks. I think that's a great philosophy. Epic goes through a careful process to select who to give funds to. He behaves like a venture capitalist. He has 45 data points to help them decide which um, organisations they'll select and they spend seven months um, vetting the people that they could give um, money to. Strong CR practices can augment business performance as we discussed in the interview with Paul to deliver additional ROI and make up for certain deficiencies in business performance to preserve, protect and even grow the financial ROI. Companies must approach CR seriously if they're to enjoy significant benefits. You know, the CR potential for companies, medium-sized companies, they can increase revenue up to 20%, increase price premiums by 20%, increase customer commitment, Establish CR brand and reputation value as eleven up to 11% of the total value of the company and avoid revenue losses of up to 7% of the firm's market value. So investment in CSR pays off. Doing good is really good business. And uh, all the studies I've seen offer proof that it's perfectly reasonable to expect great things for your business when you're doing great things for the world. So we hope you support our Giving Tuesdays once a month. Now, according to Hustle, sometimes there's just no words to describe how cool a product is. You see a product and you think, wow, that's cool. I wish I could take a picture and tell people what it's about. But um, lens technology means that you can just take a picture of the product and – it pops up, and this is Pinterest, so it's an accompanying retail feature. So you just take a picture, up it pops, and then you can one-click order on Amazon. So it's very, very cool, and that's um, that's Snapchat. It's Pinterest, and it's called Lens Image Recognition. So you see something you like, take a photograph, up it pops. One click, and you can order it on Amazon. Pretty good. So I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read. Occasionally, it's longer. But it will keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. We have lots of people who say to us, I used to get 30, 40 um, business newsletters a week, and I've scrapped them all. And just get yours because you get such a wide range of subjects and um, it could be medical, it could be technological, it could be environmental, it could be staffing practices, it could be whatever is hot news that day. It could be about the Hyperloop, it could be about flying cars, it could be about a whole stack of things and it's important for you to have that information. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier 
and more rewarding to do something that's impossible than it is to do the ordinary because everybody does the ordinary. How hard can that be? Next week, we'll be back broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard where technology meets entertainment. And I hope you can join me again. Don't forget, Giving Tuesdays, we'll announce in advance when it's going to happen and dig deep, give us some money, we'll tell you where it's going and it'll all be audited, no shenanigans, all go straight to the cause. In the meanwhile, please continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. Good night, Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.